was absolutely incredible. I just want you all to know that when Robin invites you up to, to share something, whatever it is, whatever you hear from God, whether it's one single word or you know, sharing a verse, whatever that looks like, please feel free to, to come up and do that. It's an open invitation for whatever God's put in your heart to, to share. There were a couple of, of things that really struck me in there. And one of them was when Angie was talking about Saul trying to put armor, put his armor on David, how it didn't fit. Well, David already had armor. He'd been for years out by himself worshiping and praising God. And he was building up the armor that God was giving him in those times. In the times where he was alone, just out there in the fields tending sheep. God was putting armor on him. And so of course it didn't, Saul's armor wouldn't fit. He already had armor on. And the other thing, uh, that, that really got me is when we were singing that, that one of those songs at the end when it says, just like Moses, uh, I'll seek your face or, or love to see your face. I don't know the exact line. Live to see your face, is that what it is? I don't know, I wasn't looking. So, uh, that was something that was, for me, it's, it's an incredible thing because when you think about that, Moses was put in the cleft of the rock. And, and God allowed all of his glory to pass by. He wouldn't, he wouldn't allow Moses to see his face. But Moses could see all of the glory of God. And then we, we jump over to, to John 14, and Philip said to, to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So in Moses, he got to see all the glory of the Lord. In Jesus, we get to see the face of the Father. And it's all brought together where we get to see the glory and the faith and the face. So incredible to me. Um, that, that time of worship, it's, it's so special and intimate because we do get to now be in the courts of God. Thankfulness is what brings us in there. Not, not the complaining or the grumbling or prayers of petition where we're, we're seeking to be heard or, or seeking to have what it is that we want. It's just an absolute special thing to be able to cast off the cares of, of everything in, in life and know that we are taken care of, that we have a provider. And that's one of the things we're going to talk about today as we get into looking at the tabernacle. Is, is God wants to be our provider. He wants to, to bring provision to us. He doesn't want us to worry about any needs that we have. We need to be able to give up everything. And follow him. We need to be able to give up worries about shelter, food, money, clothes, all the things that we know he's going to provide us with. All right. Father, I thank you for this opportunity that we have this morning to come together and share oneness with each other, to share oneness with you. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be able to just, just stand in awe of you, to, to lift your name high, to exalt you. 
right now, God, I ask that you would open our hearts. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name. I want you to be able to also continue your worship with giving. At any point you want to give, please bring it up here. I don't care if we're in the middle of talking or what. If you feel that, just just come up and give. Bring your, your worship to the altar. I want to do a little recap. Two weeks ago, we talked about Jesus as the chief cornerstone. We have got to fix that, don't we? <laughs> oh, wow. Um, all right. Jesus is the chief cornerstone um, that you should measure everything against, right? And we talked about Jesus. What do you think about this? What do you think about my interactions on social media, what I'm watching, what I'm listening to. What are you doing today that you want to draw me into? What is it you want to show me? What is it you want to reveal to me? Who is it that you are highlighting that that you want me to share you with? The why? Why are we doing this? Because it's put the kingdom of God in your hands. The everlasting kingdom belongs to you. Remember we talked about that. For that, that stone that was cut out of the mountain without hands that became a great stone and grew and filled the whole earth and became an everlasting kingdom. That's in your hands. It belongs to you. You need to take hold of it. Last week we looked at the, the camp of Israel uh, while they were out in the wilderness and how the, the camp was specifically arranged around the tabernacle. We looked at the seven rebellions in the book of Numbers, the rebellions of fire. That was where they were complaining. And then God started consuming the people with fire on the outskirts of the camp because they were whining and complaining and grumbling. And also the, the uh, rebellion that, that brought in the, the snakes, uh, the snakes of fire, and Moses had to create the bronze snake and put it on the pole so they could look at it and be saved. And then the rebellions of meat and water, where they complained about the manna. They wanted meat, so God gave them meat. So much so that they, they were going to eat their fill for an entire month. And they wound up being a plague, making them sick and, and killing them. And then the, uh, the rebellion where they were complaining about not having enough water. Right. They wanted water for, for them, for their animals. They're in the wilderness. They're complaining there isn't any. God commanded Moses to use faith and speak to the rock. And it would yield water. But he got angry and struck the rock twice rather than speaking to it. Remember, it doesn't take faith to, to strike something, right? It takes faith to, to speak. And that's one of the things that, uh, that's counted as righteousness is using faith. So what was the point of, of oh, and then the, the other rebellion was uh, where the people decided they wanted to go back to Egypt, right? So they picked leaders and said, hey, take us back to Egypt because it was better there to be a slave and be beaten and have to work every day and never rest. That was better. So take us back to that, right? And that was a rebellion. What was the point of looking at these rebellions? Anybody remember? To see how easy it was to lose focus. See how easy it was to forget who God has been for us and, and, and to forget how he has shown up in, in mighty and powerful ways uh, for us. And they forgot. The Israelites forgot. They forgot that big one where they, you know, they saw the, the Red Sea parted and, and the land down there was dry for them to walk right on through. No problems. And then watch the mighty force that was Egypt swallowed up in that same water. They forgot. They forgot these things. And it's easy to fall into that and start complaining against God. We know when you, when you read numbers and you start looking at these rebellions, they're a mirror that, that's held up to us 
is we can see these same rebellions in our own life. We can see the times where we grumble and complain and whine, and it just it, it serves no purpose other than complaining. And he was talking about that with the Psalms. Yes, you can see that with David. You can see him getting into that, but he was he was in communion with God. He wasn't just complaining to his friend about God. He was talking to God. But he always turned into a rejoicing. He didn't just let it let it hang at, at complaining. We need to be focused on both, uh, both on the mission, you know, your assignments, uh, and, and more significantly focused on Jesus. And today, today we're going to talk about, uh, the tabernacle, uh, the significance to the Israelites and to us. And before we get into, to what that actually looked like, you know, we have to go back, right? There was covenant made with Abram and eventually Isaac was born. Took quite a while for that that covenant and that promise to be fulfilled there, and then uh, uh, Isaac had Jacob. And there's there's I found different meanings to Jacob's name. Uh, one was he takes by the heel. I've also heard heel catcher, but another meaning is he cheats. If you go look at the life of Jacob, it makes sense. Yeah, usurper makes sense when you when you read about his life, and then his sons. They became the tribes of Israel. So we looked at that picture of how the camp was laid out. We saw all those those uh, tribes around there. Those are all named after the sons of Jacob. And they became a, a really large population of people, a, a nation, when they were in captivity in Egypt. And so after 400-ish years of captivity, God answers their, their real desperate cries to be released from the oppression of their once friends. Because if you remember when they first came to Egypt and Jacob brought his family to Egypt, they were, they were celebrated because one of his sons, Joseph, was the one who was able to, to have the dream interpreted and, and make sure that Egypt was set up to be very mighty even through the famine that was coming. There's, there's a lot more to that story that you could talk about where everybody could have been rich and not just Egypt. But they were friends there, and they were set up in, in a, a great spot in Egypt. One of the choice lands is where they were able to set up and start building. And so they used to be friends with Egypt, but... At one point, one of the pharaohs said, mm, they're getting a little bit too big over there. And so we need to make them our slaves. And so that's what happened. So God rescues them. He desires to be their provider of everything. No needs. They won't have any wants or needs because God will provide everything that they, they need. Yet they continued to reject him and complain. We saw that, right? We looked at that. God wanted a family, and he wanted to spend time with them. He wanted to be the center of his people, and you could see that in the layout of the camp. So God made a way for that to become a reality. And one of the, the recurring themes you're going to see in this, in all of these topics that we're talking about, is God wants to be close with us. He wants to be close to his people, intimately in their lives, not distant and far off. And, and this is significant to keep at the front of your mind. Right? I've used the word intimacy probably, probably a few hundred times this year to describe the relationship with Jesus. And, and that isn't unintentional. I, I want to provoke thought in your mind. I want you to actually have thoughts. And I want you to be a mindless robot as to how God created you. You have a brain, and I want you to use it. And so using the word intimacy, it's not unintentional. I want you to know that relationship with Jesus. And why that word? Because, because to know another intimately 
means you are, are bearing all to them. Everything is laid out there. You're holding nothing back. Nothing is hidden. It's all laid bare. It is, it's a relationship that goes deep. And it, it's not, it's not a relationship that is a, a mild, mile wide and, and an inch deep. No, we are talking about, you know, the inmost depths of one another. That is this intimate relationship of Jesus that I'm talking about. I want that visual in your head when you hear the word intimacy describing the relationship with God. This description of intimacy, it's, it's the best I can give words to in order to describe how God wants to interact with you. In the foundations we're laying, intimacy with Jesus, it's an absolute requirement. An absolute requirement. In the tabernacle, the layout, there, there is a specific way that this is laid out. And we have a visual we're going to put up here for you. God wanted a family and he wanted to spend time with them. He wanted to be at the center of his people, right? We said that before. And so in this layout, in this first picture, you're seeing, this is what it looked like. This was the, the outer court there. And we're going to get into some more specifics here in just a minute. You can see the entrance curtain. Which way did the entrance of the tabernacle face? Do you remember? East. Faced east. All right, then you come in. You see uh, tables along the side. Those are uh, slaughtering tables. And then you see the altar. And then that next thing, it's, uh, it says the bar, but I don't understand. It's a wash, wash basin. It's a place for the priests to wash their hands and feet before they go in to, to handle their, their duties inside of the tabernacle. And so you see the pillar of smoke there. You would see the, the pillar of smoke resting on the tabernacle when God was there. When that cloud would lift, it would be, it would be time to move. All right. The next, uh, picture. I'm not sure how well, I don't know if you can see this well. Everybody see that okay? See what it's labeled? All right. When you first come in the outer veil, well, let's look at the outside of this. The covering, there was, it was a four layer covering on this. Uh, the outer lane in this picture was labeled badger skins. I've seen this, depending on what, what you read, you're going to see a lot of different things that this outer covering could have been. Uh, one of the ones that I found was also, uh, it said it was goat skin, which seems more likely out in, in the wilderness that they would be able to find, but. Uh, so then there was uh, the second layer of that was a covering of ram skin, and that was dyed red. And then underneath that was a curtain of goat's hair. And then underneath that was a curtain of fine linen. So it was a four-layer piece that went over the outside of this. So when you walk in the outer veil, you see the, the table of showbread, the lampstand, and then just outside the veil to the Holy of Holies is the altar of incense. And then through that veil was the Ark of the Covenant or Ark of the Testament. So that's what it looked like inside. So that is, is the specific layout. So like we said, God wanted to, God wanted a family and he wanted to spend time with them. He wanted to be the center, in the center of his people. So he, he made a way for that to be a reality. And this is it right here. So when you start reading about this, and you can read about each one of these things in great detail in Exodus uh, chapters 25 uh, through, I forgot what it was, through 27, lays this out. And what you find is that uh, in the instructions that were given to Moses for how this was to be constructed, for each of the, the furnishings inside of it, it was given in the manner of, of the first instruction that came was for the ark, for how that was to be built, how it was to be handled. So the ark was just the box, and then the covering was called the mercy seat. It's also, uh, in, in reading through this, it could be called the atonement seat, and we're going to get into that a little bit more, uh, later. And then the instructions for the altar were given. Instructions for the table 
and for the lampstand. And then the instructions were given for the construction of the tent and the veils itself, and for the wash basin outside, and for the altar outside, and then for the the uh, screen that went all the way around. So God didn't start with, hey, let me tell you about how to construct this tent, and then let me tell you about the stuff that needs to go in it. So, you know, when you think about this, you don't think about uh, building your furniture before you build your house, but that's how God wanted it. Because what was most important was where he was going to sit, where he was going to rest. And that was on the mercy seat. That was placed on top of the ark. So who was allowed in there? The priests were the, the only ones allowed inside the tabernacle. And Aaron was the only one allowed inside the Holy of Holies. He was only allowed inside the Holy of Holies one time per year on the Day of Atonement. If they had to move, you can go in and you can read in, in numbers also in the beginning about how things were supposed to be taken down. What that was. Uh, how things were supposed to be taken down. So there was a specific uh, order in how things were taken down and who was supposed to do what. Aaron and his sons were supposed to come in and cover all of these things inside of uh, the tabernacle, the ark, uh, the altar of incense, the lampstand, the table for the showbread. They had to come in and cover all these things in a certain way before they could be moved. And you can read about that in Numbers. So in that, Moses wasn't even allowed to go into the tabernacle. And he gets all of the instructions for, from God. Moses gets all the instructions on how everything is supposed to be built and how everything is constructed and put together and how they're supposed to be moved. But he wasn't allowed to go in there. We look at Exodus chapter 40, verse 34 through 38. It says, In the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So Moses wasn't even allowed in there. Just Aaron, his sons, So when the cloud lifted, they would move, which, which meant the glory of the Lord had lifted, and they could go about their work in the prescribed manner, uh, of course, and, and pack up everything to do. All right, there, there was structure and order around here. There's order around the tabernacle. Each of the clans within the tribe of Levi had their duties when the tabernacle was set up, and Numbers 4 lays that out in, in, in great detail. Couldn't just stroll into the court and start handling business. Uh, that's just not how it, how it worked. Right? There, there was a way things needed to be done. And one of the things you can you can see a lot about this is, excuse me, with structure and order. With if you read Leviticus, you'll see that there's different um, different sacrifices that were made, and and those were brought. For different reasons. And one of the, one of the ways that it's translated a lot is, uh, sin offering. That they would bring a sin offering for different things. And, and not everything that they brought offering for, uh, was, uh, about sin as we would think about it as, as some kind of moral infringement that you would make. Uh, there, there were laws that said if you touched a dead body, you were unclean. And you needed to bring sacrifice to be made clean again. And 
for some reason that's translated as a sin offering. There was no moral, uh, um, no moral impurity there. It was somebody died in your house and you had to take them out. You handled the dead body, you're unclean. You were, you were now unfit for sacred space. And so you could look at that more as like a decontamination offering. But when you think about the tabernacle, it has the holy place and the most holy place, or the holy of holies. You had to be made right to be able to come in there. You had to be made clean. And so a, a lot of these, a lot of the, the laws that had to be followed with sacrifice being brought into the tabernacle were about, you can think about it more as a decontamination rather than a sin. Because not everything that they, they did and had to be made clean for was, was some kind of moral sin. So you didn't just stroll in there and as anyone and start offering sacrifice. And not anybody could just go into the tabernacle. There was that structure that was maintained in there. So what's different today? How do we enter the courts of God? How do we get into the tabernacle? We don't have to come with, with sacrifice, uh, or, or repentance. It's, uh, repentance is a natural byproduct of, of being in the presence of God. But Andrew was talking about that earlier. Do we come with, with repentance on the mind to enter into the courts of God? Or we come with praise and thanksgiving? Repentance is a byproduct of being in the presence of holiness. That's just going to happen. You get in the presence of God, you're going to want to repent and get this, you know, ah, this is distracting me from, from being focused on you, Jesus. And so you, you repent. And, and it, this isn't anything that is, has to be done in some ritual manner. It's just, ah, I repent of this guy. You're just turning. Just making that turn and coming up higher. So the order and structure, they, they've changed and they are now much more personal for us. It's not something that was done on our behalf by the priest. It's now much more personal. So why was the tabernacle constructed in the beginning? One thing in all this we can't forget is God wanted a family. Very specifically, a family that would want to work with him in the place he created for them to dwell. He wanted to dwell with them. He wanted, uh, he, he desired to be in their midst. That's what he wanted. In this tabernacle is, it's the covenant that is being talked about. It's kind of bringing the covenant together that was made with Abel. Hundreds of years before this, when God made the covenant with, with Abram, who later called Abraham, God is trying to fulfill part of that covenant by bringing the people into, into the lust land that they are rejecting because there are some all people living there that build nice cities. I mean, that's the report, right? These big people, they got nice cities, big fruit. Maybe we shouldn't go in there. Seems kind of weird, right? Let's look at Genesis 15 real quick. I want us to, to understand the covenants that we're looking at when it comes to the tabernacle. So Genesis 15, we're going to start in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward, your reward shall be very great. First thing God says to him is fear not. Something else we were talking about this morning before we're getting started was fear. How it so easily can just take hold of us when we know we're supposed to do something. We know we're supposed to speak something. And this, this started from the very beginning, from, from the garden and that first rebellion by Adam and Eve. 
That's where fear started because immediately they were, they were fearful of themselves. They were fearful of God and what he was going to say. And so he's, God's telling Abram, fear not. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Right there, that's the, that's that faith piece. He just believed God. God spoke and he's, I believe you. Very simply, just believe. And God counted that to him as righteousness. Verse 7, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. You can see we talked about this earlier. The slavery and captivity in Egypt. God's talking to Abram about this right now. Verse 14, But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Remember when the, the Israelites left Egypt? What did they do? They collected up the wealth of the nation and took it with them. Verse 15, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenazites, the Kadamites, I can't say these names today, the Hittites, Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So he goes through all of this. And he, he shares with Abram what he's going to do. He makes a covenant with him, promise. And so we can see this, this transition happening here. What God promised to Abram hundreds and hundreds of years before, we're now getting to see. We're getting to see the, the dwelling of God with his people. And we're seeing that in the tabernacle. And jump down a couple of chapters to Genesis 17. It says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you. And, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generation for an everlasting covenant to be God to you 
and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep, between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or brought or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So God promised to do all of these things. And the obedient piece there was just simply circumcision. That was it. That was just a sign to say that, yeah, that's all. Uh, um, That was just a sign to show outwardly that we are the people of this covenant with God. That we are being obedient to Him in this. He called Abraham and said that he was going to be the father of a multitude of nations. They were being given the land that he walked through. If you go back and you, and you read about Abraham, you see that he walked through and wandered through all of the promised land. But he could see the land that was going to be given to his offspring. I want to jump over to Matthew 5 because I want to, I want us to understand fulfillment of covenant. Because when God is talking to him about kings coming from his line, in what we just read, it's more than just the kings that we see ruling the nation of Israel. It's also the king of kings that's coming later. So Matthew chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. When we look at the tabernacle, we've got to be thinking about covenant. We've got to be thinking about the covenants that were made in the Old Testament and looking at the fulfillment of them in Jesus, and looking at where covenant is taken with us now in Jesus. He didn't come to to get rid of the law, which was placed inside of the ark. That was the testament of the covenant that was made with Abram, or with Abraham. It was placed inside the ark there and, and, and kept there. And that's one of the reasons it was called the Ark of the Testament, as well as the Ark of the Covenant. There was a a testifying that was going on with that. So now, let's look at the covenant made through Jesus. The new covenant that was made with with Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. We're going to start in the Old Testament. I want to start in Jeremiah 31. We're going to start in verse 31. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. 
not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. He's talking about something new, right? And he refers back to that time where he took Israel by the hand and brought them out of, of bondage and brought them out of captivity. Wanted to be everything, wanted to be absolutely everything for them. But they couldn't, they couldn't do it. They just whined and complained and, and broke covenant with God. Verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Let's jump over to Hebrews. Hebrews 8. Let's start verse 1. Hebrews 8, 1 says, Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent, that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were here, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. This is going back and pulling from Jeremiah right there. Pulling from Jeremiah 31. And if you go look at, at what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5, it talks about God doesn't remember any of these things. That was one of the things that happened when Jesus went to the cross and shed his blood on our behalf. We're, we're now looked at through a, a filter, basically. We have been made into new creatures. And because of that, there, there is nothing that is, is in, in our belief in Jesus as our Savior. There is nothing that is remembered when it comes to our sin. Our, uh, remember their sins no more. God said he will not remember our sins. That's a choice on his part. That's part of the covenant that we share now. That should be exciting. Because when we come into belief with him, we don't have to worry about that. You don't have to try to, to do some act that says, okay, if I, if I do this many things, I should be okay. It should cover all this other stuff. You don't have to worry about that. That's, that's not the way it works. We get to come into 
the Holy of Holies at any point. Because the tabernacle is now us. We are now the temple of God. We are housing the Spirit of the Lord. Can we all agree on that? Okay. That's good. We are meant as a derivative creature of God or an imager, an image bearer, right? To draw our true humanity or identity from a dependent relationship on God. We're meant as derivative creatures of God to draw true humanity, our true humanity, from a dependent relationship with God. We're meant to share his character, which is only possible in relationship. We're meant to share his character, and that's only possible in that intimate relationship. That kind of intimate relationship we talked about right up front. And God accomplishes this by sharing his life in intimate union with us. This is, this is an incredible image of why the tabernacle was constructed and why it was done with such precision and detail. A couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the cornerstone, I had to close your eyes and we went through that, that time of seeing yourself as one of the Israelites standing there watching that scene of Jesus being questioned. And, and as we're, we're talking about the tabernacle right now, and, and thinking about the, the rebellions we talked about last week and, and how God really wants to be in our midst, wants to be with us and, and dwell within us all the time. I, I just hope you can, you can close your eyes and, and be able to imagine and see the heartbreak of God in those rebellions. See the heartbreak of God in, in, in our own rebellions. But at the same time, see the anticipation that he called Abel. The anticipation of what he was going to do hundreds of years later. And he brought his people out of Egypt. I, I just, I hope you could feel God's joy of being able to, to bring his inheritance out of Egypt. I hope you can feel his joy of being their rescuer, their provider, their family, an intimate partner, because that's what he wants to do for you. That's exactly what he has, he has set up through this new covenant. To be your rescuer, your provider, that intimate partner. The tabernacle was, it was about connection. God wants to dwell with you. He wants to be with you in everything you do. Going back to the, the cornerstone and asking those questions. That is part of this intimate relationship. He wants to be with you in everything you do. He wants to be your provider, your security, your comfort, your everything. He wants to be in an intimate relationship with you. So how will you connect with God this week? Before you leave today, tell someone and then make a plan with them to follow up for accountability. How are you going to connect with them this week? I really hope and desire for you that connection is something that you will not just be drawn into, but you will pursue that you will seek out. The intimate relationship with God and with Jesus, it, it is an absolute requirement in building foundation. If you're not going to pursue intimate relationship with Him, I wouldn't even worry about foundations.
Father, I thank you for the, the picture you've given us of dwelling and being with you. I thank you for the picture of the tabernacle and how it points now to us. I thank you that your, your spirit rests in us continually. We don't have to worry about the, the cloud lifting. I thank you that we need to be that holy place. I thank you for the ultimate sacrifice done on our behalf. That allows us to, to just not have to worry about anything. We can live holy lives, be obedient. We are oneness with you and with one another. I thank you for this morning, Father, that we get to, to together come into your courts praising you and thanking you for everything that you're doing for us. For everything that you are for us. Thank you.